Hi, I'm Shreen Patrick, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest to Landsberg is the CEO of Grove Collaborative, the unique e-com whizkind that I'm really interested in. It makes and sells home and personal care products and has some really interesting kind of ethos behind its brand, which I'm excited to talk to Stu about. Hi, Stu. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. So let's sort of jump right in. What have and I'm asking almost every single kind of leader this question these days. What really have the last sort of few months been like for your business and just kind of running a company? They've been there's so many dimensions to the last few months. And the first thing I would say is that I think this this connects with everyone differently on a really human level. And there are so many families that have been touched by the disease in ways that are deeply personal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I I should start there and say that, you know, before even talking about the business, it's really, this is a a deeply sort of human moment, I think, for us as a society. And so as a business leader, you know, for me, everything starts with people. And that's, that's where this moment starts too, right? How do we show up for the people in our community of customers? And how do we show up for our whole company? You know, the amazing folks who show up at our fulfillment centers every day, to the people in our headquarters, to the Grove guides who answer tens of thousands of customer contacts every week. And you know everybody has a little bit of a different set of needs, uh, both sort of emotional and practical. And so you know there were probably more high impact decisions to be made in the last 60 days than in a normal year. You sort of compress a year's worth of decision making yeah. into 60 days. But you know, we've been fortunate to have a community that I think has turned to us uh, in a in a pretty nice way throughout mm-hmm. this. And I am fortunate to have a really amazing group of colleagues who have responded in line with our our principles um, in terms of keeping ourselves and our people safe to the extent that we can, and at the same time serving our community. And that's really interesting. I like what you said there. It does feel like the last few weeks, really, let's say about 10 weeks has been almost like a compression. It's like everything's been accelerated. It's like people keep telling me they feel like they've lived, you know, five years. Um, And that's really interesting. Kind of I'm curious to get a little bit more at your point of view on you know, running kind of a company during this time. Um, can we sort of go back a little bit? I love, I'd love if you can kind of walk us through, you know, sort of the early days of this crisis really kind of starting and, you know, at what point kind of you said, okay, this is how this is going to affect us. And how have you sort of sought to kind of future plan while knowing that for in so many cases, there's just so many unknowns. It's like people tell me they're reforecasting and replanning on you know, a daily, weekly basis now. Um, so let's go back a little bit. Talk to me a little bit from the early days and sort of when you first realized, okay, this is going to be something that's really going to change, you know, not just my business, but the world. We we became aware of this slowly and then all at once. You know, there was a, a week in March there, and I think anybody who runs a consumer-facing business will remember this week where demand was Demand had been building, and then all of a sudden, for a week, it was off the charts. And we had a big decision to make that week of how how do we want to respond? Do we want to prioritize our existing customers, or do we want to prioritize going after new customers? Mm -hmm. Do we want to sort of try to maximize profit, or do we want to try to maximize the number of families served? Do we want to run 10-day ship times, or do we want to limit the number of orders? And reach the people who are ordering more quickly. And we made the call fairly early on that you know, 
our Grove is so much about helping people build new positive habits that we still wanted people to have a great experience with the with Grove, even in this moment. And so we turned down a lot of demand to make sure that we could serve our subscribers really well mm-hmm. and that we could really show up for our community and our ship times never got past four days or so, even in the sort of height of pandemonium. And we probably left a lot of money on the table by doing that in the short term. But I think over the long term, it allowed us to to really deliver for our customers. You know, there I, I can't tell you how many customer comments I got of we got hand sanitizer from Grove. It's the only place that has any left. And you know, we're still charging the same thing we always charged, which is super reasonable. A small mm-hmm. is like three ninety five. A large is like five ninety five. And it's like mm-hmm. pretty good prices. Um, I mean, exceptional prices for how good the product is. <laughs> oh yeah. Because, you know, there were those $1,000 hand sanitizers all over the internet. No, but I mean, ours, I think, are maybe a little bit biased, but I think our product is the best on the market, right? Organic essential oils. Like, it's really just, I mean, you should use it. Feels better than anything else you use. Anyway. (laughs) It's true. uh, I do use it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, like, hopefully you agree. Um, But, yeah, I think people were really excited that they could still find a lot of the necessities at Grove, and we worked hard to secure those for our community. And so we made that call early on that we were going to prioritize customer experience over sort of max, max demand capture, if you will. And that had a lot of downstream consequences in terms of how we thought about planning, how we thought about warehouse capacity expansion, how we thought about marketing. We set uh, limits on how many products per customer uh, people could buy in each order to prevent hoarding, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And overall, I think the measures were reasonably effective. Uh, and I think people are people have, have responded quite well. Can you give me, um, I love these like nitty gritty examples that you were just sort of talking about. You know, the, the decisions you're making, it's like people sort of, you know, always think kind of big picture, oh my God, this big thing is happening. But for any business, there's these tiny decisions you make kind of really quickly. Okay, ship time. Okay, here's how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to tackle this problem. These are the, can you give me, I'd love to go really deep on one of those decisions that you made in those early sort of days that, you know, again, had that very significant downstream effect that you're talking about. And especially because they seem to me all decisions that kind of really ladder up to sort of this like ethos of growth that I do want to get a little bit into afterwards. But let's start with an example of a decision you made. Sure. So the best example is probably we had a fairly limited supply of hand sanitizer relative to demand. And you know we knew we could increase production relatively quickly, but not instantly. Mm-hmm. And so we had this interesting moment where hand sanitizer, you know, when we're advertising hand sanitizer to attract new customers, you know, the return on that advertising was exceptionally good because everybody was looking for it. Right. But our existing customers really wanted that hand sanitizer also. And how you allocate a scarce resource like that says a lot about the way sort of we structure our priorities as a company. Mm-hmm. And so we made the decision to prioritize existing customers. We basically took it out of everything involving new customer acquisition um, and we built a wait list and sort of had a tiered system of how we let folks know, folks in our VIP community, folks on our wait, excuse me, folks who've been on the wait list and you know, managed the distribution of hand sanitizer like those decisions laddered all the way up to me, not because they were particularly important from a pure financial perspective, but in a moment where you have a product that people are are panicked and trying to get their hands on, 
how you distribute it says a lot about you. And at the same time, you know, we cut off a pretty significant chunk of our supply to donate to hospitals in every one of the states that we operate because, you know, those, those folks are heroes in our communities too. And the local communities are important stakeholder groups to us, just like our shareholders and our customers. And yeah. so, you know, it was really awesome for me to see the pictures of people from our team, you know, dropping off hand sanitizer at hospitals. And I feel like we, we did as well as we could to distribute the product as broadly as we possibly could. So what did that really mean for your advertising? Because it sounds like, you know, obviously you prized your current customer over a new customer. You and you know, there's a lot sort of to be said because you realize that's where you needed to be for them. And then you had obviously the the donations and sort of helping out the local community angle. How did this change, you know, the way you marketed kind of both from how you were spending perspective and also from how you were actually messaging? So we we had to turn off effectively all of our spending because we couldn't couldn't take new orders. For a couple of days we actually just stopped accepting new customers altogether and you could enter your email but That's we it. we just said I'm sorry, we can't provide you an experience that we would be proud of and so you know we're going to ask you to wait. Um which was super sad to do. We hate to turn away people who are trying to make a positive change in their life. Right. Um but that was that was the decision that we made. As we turned advertising back on, you know, we have been tried to walk a fine line between being, we were not trying to be profiteering, right? And panic mongering or any of that stuff. At the same time, you know, we want to be supportive and relevant. And when I think about the emotional core of Grove, it really comes down to helping people feel great about the decisions they're making for their homes and families. And that's still really relevant today. Right. And so I think we we didn't lean in to, you know, make the germs deader, but we do, we did lean into the place that's always been our strength, which is people's homes and families have never been more important. And I think in Grove, Grove, when you buy from Grove, you should feel good about the decision you're making for the people in your household. And so we leaned in there and have seen a pretty strong response. We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. Um, I think what you're saying is really interesting. Obviously it's like Pen, the pandemic kind of fueling this. But, you know, a lot of people have for the last sort of few years talked about how important it is to focus on retention over just anything else. And then you had so many companies, you know, in consumer goods, but also we saw this, you know, from our end in the publishing space where a lot of people focused on new customer acquisition at ridiculous in some cases prices. And in many cases sort of didn't think as much about customer retention. And then they saw incredible churn rates. They saw a lot of issues afterwards. Is this, you know, obviously this is something you did and had to do because you had to focus on fulfilling orders and you had a limited supply, but has this sort of changed or has this always been a philosophy of how you're sort of balancing new customer acquisition versus customer retention? Because yes, everyone ideally does both, but there is some place where you kind of think differently or more philosophically almost about it. We've we've been a high growth company for the last few years. So this isn't the first time where we've seen demand really exceed our ability to put orders out the door. And we have always been a company that cares about long-term customer relationships. And our perspective is 50% of the customers who join Grove are totally new to the category. They've never bought any of the brands we sell, oh, wow. right? They're totally new to natural. And so our job is to help them on their journey to making more sustainable, healthier decisions. And, you know, the people or brands that we're competing with are some of the strongest brands in history. 
Right. And so we really have to show up for our customer every day. We should be great at education, great at community, great at customer service, deliver on time. Everything has to be packaged properly. I mean, it really has to feel good. And so we've always been super focused on delivering for our customer priority one, two, three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. And growth has always been a priority as well, right? You can't have impact unless you have scale. But I think growth doesn't matter unless you're selling something that people genuinely want over the long term. There aren't companies that make it for 10 years that you don't buy from five years after you first hear of them, right? Like that's that's how you build a company that can be around for 100 years, which is our goal. Mm -hmm. And so we've always really focused on customer experience and also product quality over everything else. How does kind of the current situation change, if at all, you know, just your forecasts for, you know, the coming year, but also into next year, Um, just in terms of the company's growth, um, financials, what have you had to adjust and how have you sort of sought to, if practically applicable, kind of cut costs where it makes sense? Um, What have been some of those decisions and sort of how have you thought through, uh, thought through kind of getting this through to, you know, next year and beyond? The first thing that's changed is cadence, of course. You know, we used to be in a position where we could forecast out a couple of months with a pretty high degree of accuracy. Now we're lucky if we can forecast a couple of days with a high degree of accuracy. And that's continuing today. You know, we're, we're well past sort of the peak of demand, but variability on a day-to-day basis is much higher than we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so you know, forecasting is still, still sort of on a more frequent cadence than we've ever seen. And I think that'll, that'll stay because consumer behavior candidly, is less predictable. Mm. As states are starting to reopen, are we going to see a resurgence in shopping sort of offline? Or are we going to see the opposite impact as cases grow? Are people going to get scared and go back to panic buying? I don't know. And Mm. I don't think it's possible to know. And so we've taken the approach of, I think, a, a twofold approach. The first is we believe that expense discipline is always valuable, but in particular heading into an economic environment that could be challenged, we need to save every dollar that we can for our customer. You know, we really, we offer prices, generally speaking, below Target, below Amazon. We offer a great price, great value for our consumer, and we want to put every dollar we can into the consumer's pocket. And so that that requires a culture of expense discipline. It's always important but particularly heading into what I expect to be a really challenging economic cycle. Um, that's, that's number one. And, you know, number two is really about how do we, how do we make sure that we are prepared to meet the customer wherever she is? If she's focused on value, you know, that's on the, the internal side. This is more on the customer facing side. How do we meet the customer where she is? If she's focused on value, how do we make sure we're delivering delivering that value and communicating clearly that you don't have to sacrifice in value in order to get great products and you don't have to sacrifice Mm -hmm. in quality to get great value. You don't have to sacrifice in terms of sustainability or human health to find products that are in your budget. How do we deliver on that message Mm -hmm. in a really clear way? Some of it may be assortment. Some of it may be messaging. Some of it may be changing pricing strategy. So how do we think about if there is a recession to really position ourselves to show up for our consumer Number one and number two, if they're on the other hand, if there is sort of another spike in cases that causes the same purchase pattern that we saw last time, how do we show up for more customers than we did the first time? Right. right. And so those are two really opposing pieces of tension in the rope. 
And uh, it's a super interesting thing to plan for such an uncertain year. I think it really goes back to having an excellent team, which is sort of the core of any success that we have is because we have such a strong team. It is interesting to think about sort of, you know, planning for the unknowns. And I think we, we saw this across a few industries where sort of, you know, there was like a camp in the middle that said, okay, it's the V-shaped. We just, fine, we're going to flip a switch. Everything's going to go back very quickly. That change is sort of a U-shape. Now I'm hearing talk of an L-shape, which I sort of kind of can't follow, but I think that's more on the consumer sentiment side. Um, is, is there any, I mean, what do you even look for? What, what are prior signals that you look for when trying to make these decisions? I mean, I've been talking to people who are like, okay, I was in 2008, I was kind of doing this. So maybe I can apply some of those thoughts or, or there's some people who, you know, they weren't running a business in 2008. <laughs> just, I sure wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. And what signals do you look for? I mean, at some point, you know, there has to be something you look for in the in history or something to say, how am I going to plan for this? Because I know you don't know and nobody knows, but you have to almost like know what you don't know in order to even start yeah. running anything. So I was at Lehman Brothers in 2008, which was a really interesting place to start nice. one's career. So very I, I, have a, I have a very healthy respect for the fact that bad things can and do happen in the economy. What we look for though we're really lucky. We talk to tens of thousands of consumers a month. Hmm. We run, you know, we get tens of thousands of survey responses a month. We have tens hmm. of thousands of people. I mean, we have so much customer data flowing in. I don't have to look outside of our own data sources to understand what's coming. And you know, in our monthly survey, we saw a higher percentage of customers who've seen job losses in the last month than ever before. Mm-hmm. No, no one should be surprised by that. Um, but we're seeing it in that data and we can see what, okay, what is the, what are the purchasing patterns of the people who have higher unemployment? Do we see higher unemployment correlate with less frequent purchasing? Do we see it correlate with a trade down or do we actually see it correlate with a trade up as people are spending more time at home? Hmm. And, you know, we can use data to guide the answers on a lot of those questions. Yeah. And I'll tell you the data that I see right now makes me quite cautious about the future. But also, I, I think this is a time of unusual, un, unusual unpredictability. And so we really have to plan for both massive growth and a potential change in consumer preferences as more folks potentially become value conscious, not just values conscious, um, mm-hmm. if we do go through an economic downturn. Anything you'd seen in the last, you know, that's a really interesting point about data. And I think that's where like the value of, you know, first party data really sort of is totally. showing itself because people who have had, and I, I, we talked a lot about this and we used to sort of talk a lot about direct to consumer companies and so on. It's like, it's fine. It's just about the direct connection with the consumer. If you had that, this is going to pay dividends right now for a variety of reasons. Anything that surprised you as you were sort of, you know, looking through this data, I make it sound like you're in this like reams of folders, but, but, you know, as yeah. you've sort of like gone through the last, you know, 10 weeks, um, any specific, I don't know, behavior change or anything that was like, ah, this is, this is interesting. Um, and was there a specific change that it triggered, you know, within the company or within an assortment that you can sort of give us as an example? The thing that's been most interesting to me is that people have increased the number of different products they buy from Grove. You might have thought in this time that the assortment, people would be concentrated in their purchasing and buying fewer products, but we've seen 25% more unique SKUs per order over the last 60 days than ever before. So people are trying 
new things or trying they're, more? Of- they're trying new things and they're switching new categories to natural, which mm-hmm. is, I think, the counter to what I've read a lot in the news of, you know, Lysol being the most trusted brand again, whatever, maybe yes, maybe no. But I think people are really focused on health and wellness in a way they perhaps hadn't been. And mm. so, you know, if they only bought, like we, we own a VMS brand, vitamins brand called Honu, makes natural supplements and also natural hydration powders, which are absolutely fantastic. That brand has grown way outpaced of our overall sales. And it's not just immunity related stuff. It's hydration related stuff. It's post-workout stuff. It's, you know, everything that you can think of. Mm. And you know, a lot of these people, when we survey them, they're just switching from conventional options to natural options because they're more, they have time to think about staying healthy. And so, you know, that's one of many examples of where we've seen really pockets of strength across our portfolio. Another great example is uh, Clean Beauty, which is a newer initiative for us, mm-hmm. where I, we know from survey data that half our customers shop at Ulta and Ulta is obviously closed offline. And people are trying clean beauty brands they've never tried before because they're sort of reevaluating their whole routine. I am curious about beauty specifically, and I did want to talk specifically about, because yes, beauty is a relatively newer category for you. Um, I think there was this big sort of thing, you know, like beauty's recession proof, you know, um, I think it was like the lipstick index and all of those, and people still buy certain products because even if, especially as women, don't want to buy fashion, but beauty sort of remains this like strength, um, point of strength. And I think this current crisis is sort of interesting because I do think that that's true, but I think it's more sort of leaning into the wellness side of beauty, which obviously you are very well equipped to chat about. Um, what have some of the signals been in that category that, you know, are in your mind, at least unique to, because of this situation, especially ones that you think will actually carry forward even once we get out of this sort of, what are the longer lasting consumer sentiment changes in that category? Well, I think much like in home care, the reason platforms like ours have had success is because the product is excellent, right? The natural products genuinely are better than the conventional Mm -hmm. ones. Generally speaking, efficacy is about the same, or in some cases, it's better. The cost is in some cases lower Mm -hmm. and you feel better after using it, right? I mean, I don't know the last time you cleaned your bathroom with a conventional cleaner, but you come out with a headache, right? That's a really obvious example of the fact that your body is telling you the thing you are using is not meant to be inside your body, right? Like, um, and there are dozens of those examples. So I think when we, we find that when people switch to natural personal care or mm. clean beauty, they don't necessarily, they don't switch back because mm. the products are excellent, right? There's a stigma against natural products that they don't work, which is in the eighties, natural products didn't really work. Like you wash <laughs> your clothes with natural laundry detergent in the eighties, like, Still dirty, but that's changed. <laughs> yeah. That's really changed. You're like, you know, ah. we great, yeah, we have a great enzymatic, uh, right. natural, you know, 96% bio-based laundry detergent. That's super efficacious today. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't exist even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is very much true for beauty and personal care where, you know, we see people trading up in their particularly moisturizers and face cleansers and stuff like that. And I think they're trading into natural and sticking and exploring more products from those brands because the product quality is so high, right? It really delivers for the consumer. Yeah. And, you know, we're probably no surprise seeing more strength in uh, personal care than sort of color cosmetics. Uh, but I do think we've seen, you know, really nice sort of stacking impact 
of folks trying trading into the beauty category because the product really delivers, which is the same thing we've seen for years in natural home care. Product right. over delivers and therefore people are likely to try more products from the same brand and more products from growth. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a good time. I do want to talk a little bit about kind of you know, I think I said earlier, sort of this like ethos, and I think you use this idea of like a core of sort of a culture core that really carries through your product, but also a lot of sort of really big kind of sustainability goals that you've sort of set for the company. Um, a, tell me sort of how that's going. And B, again, has has any of that changed now in light of, again, this is a different environment, this is a different company? I'm curious about if that path sort of remains the way it is. Yes, it'll happen, but will it maybe wind a little bit more? The company's vision statement, and this is the like, take us 20, 50 years to get there, is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental Mm -hmm. health, right? Not just less bad, but actually more good, which is a pretty unique concept in, you know, across consumer companies that the more you consume, the better it is for human and environmental health, um, Obviously, that's the opposite of that has been true for a long time. And we put in place a number of programs over the last couple of years that have reinforced our ability to sort of execute against this. One of my favorites is a the paper brand we own called Seedling, which mm-hmm. is a tree-free paper brand that plants trees in the U.S. for every, every roll you buy. Mm-hmm. And so in a really interesting way, the more bath tissue you use, the more paper towel you use from Seedling the better it is for climate and environmental health. Right. Like, it's totally weird. It used to be that if you use more toilet paper, redwood forests in Canada were getting cut down. You okay. buy, you do it from Grove, like, we're actually replanting redwood forests. Just mm-hmm. kind of amazing. Um, and we're replanting them far more quickly than mm-hmm. uh, sort of the rate of deforestation from usage ever been. So it, it's, these, these categories, it's totally possible to have business models where you deliver for the consumer and you make the ecosystem stronger. Yeah. And in the beginning of 2020, we put in a couple of platforms company-wide to start to start to hit this across everything we do. So in our industry, the hardest problem is single-use plastic, like without question. Yeah. Think of any home or personal care product. I mean, it comes in plastic and mm-hmm. there aren't a lot of great alternatives. But the first thing we want, we want to do something now. And so the thing we did, we are the first and only that I know of plastic neutral brand in the country and certainly the only plastic neutral brand in our space. Mm -hmm. And so that means every ounce of plastic that we sell, be it from our brand or other brands, we pay to pull that amount of plastic from ocean bound streams and rivers and recycle it. And so we are plastic neutral in the sense that every time you buy plastic from us, we're removing an equivalent equivalent amount of plastic from the world, Um, which is, you know, it's not perfect. It's not where we want to be, but it's a great step in the right direction. And for the first time, it creates a financial incentive for us and others not to use plastic because it's expensive to pay for all of this plastic offset. Um, So that's the first piece. And then the second is we set a goal for 2025 to be 100% plastic free, which is hard, right? We don't know exactly how we're going to do it, but it's close enough that like, I have to figure it out, right? It's not like oh, the next CEO is going to figure it out. I think <laughs> right. some of the goals of like, oh- That would have been be... a neat trick. Just like, yeah, oh, well, 100 a lot of years companies from do now. That. A lot of companies do that. They're like, our goal is to be carbon neutral in 2050. And that's like kind of bullshit. Because like, it's okay, gonna be I the guess next your person's successor problem. is going to have to figure it out. 
right? It's really convenient. Um, we wanted to, to create a goal that put pressure on our whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky to have great partners who are innovating with us to, to change the way the industry looks from one that's created a ton of single-use plastic to hopefully one in five years that creates none. I think you said something, you'd done an interview actually with Modern Retail with one of our reporters uh, a few months ago, and I was actually just reading it. And you said something interesting there was like, it might get into a situation that, you know, I've created a product that needs to be reused so many times that I can't replenish the product, thus literally losing on money. But that's okay, because I've done, I've done what I set out to do. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting point of view that it was like, it's okay if in the short term, you know, some of this might actually lead to me making less money. This might not be sort of a margin, a margin thing. And, but at the same time, you do need to run a business. You do want to be profitable. You do want to, you know, be on this because not just for yourself, but also because you have this vision of this company. That's a tough balance. And I think that's where people kind of get, get caught up. How do you sort of think about it? for yourself, but also think about it when you're talking to your team saying like, we have these two goals. We want to be this like profitable and big, good business, but we also potentially are doing things that might mean short term, like our margins change and the way we make money changes. How do you think of that? So I believe the most important thing in any business are the people. And I believe the best people are mission oriented and care about the purity of the intention of the company. And our value system is really clear. It's really clear. If it costs a little bit more for us to put a product in a infinitely recyclable substrate versus plastic, we're, we're going to put it in that recyclable thing. Mm-hmm. We're just, our value system is not ambiguous here. If we can sell you, we, we sell a ton of these uh, cellulose, like they're sort of like mini cellulose dish towels. European I think that's what I was thinking of, that it's like you, you might need to use them and then you can't sell the person another one because they don't need the, it. Yeah, totally. You like, you know, we have four, we put them in the dishwasher, they last kind of forever. And I go through one roll of paper towels in a month with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Uh, and that means I buy less paper towels. And that is great. Yeah. That's great. That's like what our mission tells us to do. And the strength of this company is in the strength of our consumer relationships, right? Without Without our customers, we don't exist. And if we can help our customers make a change like that, which makes them feel better about themselves, delivers them a great product, you know, they're going to be thinking of Grove every time they don't use those paper towels. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity over the long term to transform this category that's been massively wasteful to one that delivers exactly what consumers needs, I mean, that's a huge long-term opportunity. And by doing so, we're going to shrink the size of the category. There's going to mm-hmm. be fewer dollars spent on paper towels in 20 years than there are today, God willing. And we can be a part of that transition. Uh, and I just, I believe that one of the things that's helped us succeed is a clear and unambiguous value system. Mm. And so you refer to it as a trade-off. We don't, we don't see it that way. This mm. is the way that we operate. And you know, that North Star may cost us sales here, but it'll help us attract the best talent in the world. It'll be clear to our customers of why they should stick with Grove and you know the value we're delivering. I, I think, you know, there yeah. are there are many examples of great companies having done the same thing. Um, and I, I believe especially in a world where consumers get to understand their comp- their the true intentions of the companies they buy from, like having clear and virtuous values and then ruthlessly sticking to them is essential to creating hundred year brands. 
Well, I hope there's more people who think like that, <laughs> which is uh, me which too. I think would be the ideal. <laughs> me too. And I think there are more than ever before. Absolutely. No, I agree. Stu, thank you so much for being on the Modern Retail Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre BNMA. If you like the show, please head to our iTunes store, search for the show, leave us a review and a rating. It helps new listeners find us. Thanks again for listening.